It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Essentia is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. So it's a bright and cold November morning and I'm out walking my dog Idris around the local lanes with the hills of the Brecon Beacons behind all going gold and um, it's really peaceful after all the storms rain that we've had over the past few days which have left the Brecon Beacons a bit battered and waterlogged I say quiet and peaceful there's a few jackdaws around and as always at this time of year in the countryside the distant wine of a chainsaw. <laughs> My name is Fergus Collins and I'm the host of the podcast, the Nature and Countryside podcast from BBC Countryfile magazine. And in this episode, episode 14 of our Histories and Mysteries of the Countryside season, we return to a sunny day in early autumn. Our own Annabelle Ross ventured into the wilds of Dartmoor with writer Tom Cox to talk history and folklore of this wild and rugged upland in Devon. As Tom explains, the landscape's stories and atmosphere pervade his writings, especially his recent books Ring the Hill, a non-fiction work that looks at and around the magic and power of hills, and his latest novel, Villager, which will be published in 2022 by Unbound. So listen on for a series of Tom's funny, sad, strange and unnerving tales. He's a brilliant storyteller. Oh, and please do leave likes and feedback on whichever podcast provider you use. It's such a big help to us. So, Tom, Dartmoor is known for its mysteries, isn't it? Or for its mythical stories? Is that better? It's got a huge amount of folklore. Folklore. Massive amount of folklore. Um, Can you tell us where we are, please? We are opposite um, the Warren House Inn, which I think I'm right in saying is the highest pub in southern England... And it runs off a generator. Huh. Um, it's also got a fire that has never gone out, ever. 
that's what they say anyway now i know um someone who has a friend who claims to have done a wee on the fire and have made it and, and made it go out um, but I asked the bar staff about this and they're like, no, that definitely didn't happen. It has never, never, ever gone out. Uh, I can't remember the exact amount of years, but it's over a century. Um, that sounds like such a ridiculous story of someone who was very drunk in the pub and made up that story. I reckon so, yeah. Um, so, and they have a very special way um, of clearing the ashes out without putting it out as well, which they described to me in great detail there's also another great story about it um, which often comes up in folklore which is um, I think it was it was 1800s um, there was uh, someone someone went to stay there because it's B&B as well and um, they opened the wardrobe and they found a dead body in the wardrobe and um, the landlord said sorry that's just um, father and we've um, we've salted him, <laughs> and, and we're just waiting uh, until the frost clears so we can take him across to the church, because this was the time when all the um, corpses had to be taken along the Lichway, because they all had to be buried on the other side of the moor, in the parish church. Um, so you've you've got this Lichway that goes across the moor, and there's loads of legends associated with that. For example, there's the coffin stone, which is about. Um, kind of five or six miles over there near the river dart um and um so it's, it's just a stone with a big crack in the middle and apparently um when the people were taking the coffin across the moor they they had they used to have a little rest on this stone um but they were taking a coffin with a very evil man's body in it and they rested it on the stone and lightning came down and struck it <laughs> I quite like that one as well. That is a good one. So the pub, sorry, what's it called again? It's called the Warren House Inn. Warren House Inn. So are we in the middle, middle, middle of Dartmoor? Whereabouts in Dartmoor are we? Um, it feels quite wild, but it's, I don't think it, it's quite the centre. It's a bit too accessible. There's some wilder bits. I think if you go west from here, it's a bit wilder. You're a bit, you're a bit too close to like um, Chagford and Morton Hampstead and, and settlements, really. Although, if if we look around us, obviously, it looks pretty wild. Um, there's yep. a lot of heather and bracken and bracken, yeah. And uh, yeah, we can't see anyone, can we? No, we can see. We can see. Well, let's not look up there. There's lots of people by the pub, but we can see. Um, Oh, we could see sheep and ponies, but they've all gone... Oh, you can hear them. There, yeah. there they are. See, I, I live on Dartmoor as well, but I live in um, uh, River Valley. It's kind of the, on the soft, wooded edge of Dartmoor, and it's got a different character to this. This is... I mean, it's really warm today, but this in winter up here, it's um, it can be very bleak, and the mist can come down very, very quickly, and then you can get um, disorientated by pixies. Yes, you really... It's too sunny today for those folklore stories in some ways. It needs to be misty, doesn't it? It's really not an archetypal Dartmoor day. But there is something archetypal, which is I always feel when it's really warm like this, um, you are noticeably closer to the sun when you're walking on here. There's something particularly hot. You really feel very, very close to it. I mean, that's ridiculous, obviously. We're, we're, we're what, like 2,000 feet more above sea level. It's not that much closer to the sun, but I always think you can kind of feel it. 
It does feel like that, particularly today, because it's really quite warm for late summer. So um, I feel like there's no pathway in front of us. No, but, we, uh, need, we need to change the way we're going slightly. <laughs> so we're going back up. Yeah. Okay. But I met a um, Belgian um, hiker the other week, and uh, he, it was his first time on Dartmoor. And I got chatting to him, and he was so tired, he'd been walking so far that he asked me for a lift. Um, so I gave him a lift, and he was, he was kind of delirious because he was so tired. But he'd got caught in the mist up on the top. This was a few weeks ago when it was a bit, a bit rainier, and, uh, and he said he'd, he'd gone a bit mad in the mist, and he'd just been shouting and singing to himself <laughs> and wandering around in circles. Did you appreciate that? Have you ever done that yourself? But I do, I do feel that you can do that. I mean, I, I think... Um, I Tom, got... have you ever done it, though? <laughs> I've, or something similar? I felt very... I felt stoned in the mist. Oh. I, I felt like it's, it's actually spun me around and made me very disorientated in that way that you do maybe if you've had a bit too much to drink. Um, it's... Um, it happened to me, I, I got pixie led, I think, in winter for the first time, because lots of people have told me about getting pixie led. Do you, do you know about this? No, tell us about that. Um, so you've got the Dartmoor pixies, and what they do is when the mist comes down very suddenly, they deliberately, in a dastardly way, disorientate you, and they, they can spin you around in the wrong direction, um, and they can trap you in a place like the first time i heard about this was a friend whose um grandparents um years and years ago when they were walking on the moor they were stuck in a, an area which i suppose you'd call a, a sort of field i mean it had fences and a style um and they whichever way they went they just came back to the same gate hmm. and they couldn't get out of this field so they just decided to wait it out they just sat there for hours and hours until the mist lifted and they felt that was the only way th- they could leave and legendarily you can only escape this situation if you turn your pockets out for the pixies um if you do that then they'll let you go and this had never happened to me but something very very odd happened in winter um which was um i got caught in the fog and i went up a path i'd been up before and i knew exactly what path i was on i checked my map i've checked my map numerous times since and it put me in the exact opposite direction in a completely different place to the one I was actually walking to and I've been over my map again and again I mean I've walked a lot up here I kind of know roughly where I'm going a lot of the time but I've got no explanation for it now that is quite mad and despite your past as a music journalist you don't take drugs no, I don't. I'm I'm a very clean living person, really. So I haven't even got that as an excuse. <laughs> so sorry, lead lead on, um, Tom. Where are we going? Um, so we're going to Grimm's Pound, which is a um, a village, the remnants of a village from the Middle Bronze Age, huh. and you can still kind of sit in an old living room and stuff oh. on there. You can sort of, you can properly feel that it was a village. Oh. When you, when you get there. So there's the ponies. Are they? Are they oh, I'm glad you. I'm glad you stepped in that. <laughs> I'm going to go round. There's the. Um, there seem to be hundreds of Dartmoor ponies. Yeah, they. You, you'll see them a lot on the road because they like to hang out by the. Um, 
by all the car parks because they they got used to the fact that they'll get a little treat. They'll get a sandwich. Yeah, from someone. But you're not supposed to give them that. That's so really. depressing. Um, but that, yeah, I, I once was um, next to an ice cream van and uh, a pony bit me <laughs> because it wanted to get ahead of me and, and get an ice cream really quickly. <laughs> but I... I um, oh, look at all these little... Amazing little blue, um, yellow flowers mixed with the heather. Isn't oh, that yeah. sweet? We don't know what those are, do no, we? We'll move no. on. Yeah. The, les- the listeners will know. And the heather is beautiful at this time of year as well. Really pink. A lot of the time, people seem to... Um, most people seem to think that autumn is the best on Dartmoor. It's definitely the best colour-wise. And we're on, and we're coming into we're autumn. The, yeah, I think we need another month, and it'll be absolutely at its best. But that's obviously a matter of opinion. I, I love it all year round. In- so would it be more slush, 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 slush if it was winter? Yeah, it'd be seriously boggy now. Probably this bit that we're on, and um, you suddenly like take a step and half your leg has vanished <laughs> and you've got black peat all over it um, and I am always warned about mine shafts up here but I've never actually come across them like hidden mine shafts that people just suddenly vanish down that sounds like a really long way down I think it probably would be but obviously it's got all the tin mining history up here because it was it was quite a quite a kind of worked almost industrial landscape at one point and it's been kind of reclaimed. So you can you can find lots of remnants up here of what it was. And so what and there was also loads more farming on here, but then the climate changed and farming became it became un, inhospitable um, for growing things. Um, so so that's that's how it's different and that's why it's become this wilder place. So where did everyone live? Um, they lived in hot circles up uh, here on the top uh-huh. and little an- ancient farms. I mean, you can see, we'll see remnants of them in a bit. We'll see Grimm's Pound. Um, you can see, you see that square yeah. down there with the square wall. That, the stone that's wall, an, yeah. That's another one. That'll be another old farmstead down there. So they were more farmsteads than villages? Well, there's a mixture. Yeah. No, there are, there's proper villages. There's a medieval village over by... Um, by Hound Tor, which is um, that's a it's a kind of Baskervilles type site that a lot of people go to, but it's actually called Hound Tor because there was a witch um, who turned a hunter and um, his dogs to stone, and so the hunters on the other side of the valley. Um, and there's this rock formation called the Bowman's Nose, and it looks like a bloke, so that's him, and then. His dogs are on the other side at Hound Tor, and below Hound Tor, there's a medieval village that was evacuated um, because of the Black Death. I think it was the Black Death. It was one of the plagues. I'm pretty sure it was the Black Death. Um, but yeah, it seems a bit. I, apparently, the the guy he was chasing hare w- with his fellow hunters, and he knocked a cauldron over, disturbed some witches. Um, so I think perfectly justifiable. She turned him. The head witch turned him to stone bit unfair on the dogs though i think yeah. it wasn't the the dog's decision was it to chase the hare <laughs> they were just doing what they were told yeah. um so but apparently now you can see the shape of dogs on hound tour hmm. 
so they were turned to stone as well, okay. Yeah. Well, that's a good one. I like that. I liked the, the idea of having the power to do that. Yeah, but it's but but the boring explanation is that um, the actual the rock formation that looks kind of like a bloke. Um, he looks like a bloke with a cap on. Um, he's uh, it's just an accident of geology, but it, it is quite an unusually spectacular one. So where are we heading again? Um, we are going to um, Shalakum, which is a little. That's actually um, a medieval village. Um, which you can sort of see remnants of. And then we're going to hook round to, um, to Grimspound, the Bronze Age village, um, which will take us underneath Hameldown Ridge, which is, um, which is a very, very high ridge, which is a bit, that's a bit scary. In other places, it's a bit scary in the mist. Um, oh. all, all sorts of strange shapes come come out of the mist at you they're usually just sheep or ponies um, sometimes another walker but if you've got an active imagination like me you can decide there are all sorts of things do you always take a compass with you when you're on your own um i would like to say yes <laughs> and i actually did when i was first walking up here um but i'm i suppose a little bit arrogant about it now but i'm also i'm careful like i don't I don't go out on the really high moor in really terrible weather. No. Um, like the really high bit, which is over the north-west bit towards Oakhampton. And there's also firing ranges there. I mean, I did, I did almost get, get stuck in the middle of some people shooting things. What sort of army exercise? Yeah, the, the red flags go up. And there's certain times when you're not allowed to walk on certain bits on the northwest side. Um, and I'm always really aware of this, but I went on this walk last winter where the rain was so thick, visibility was so bad, I didn't realise I'd actually stepped onto one until I heard a shot Ooh. about kind of 30 feet to my left and kind of went, oh dear, oh. better get out of the way. Were you trespassing? That's one of your pastimes, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't think that, that was <laughs> such trespassing, but I do, I do rather like... Um, I, th I think you, you can push it a little bit. I mean, my, one of my main things is just climbing inside abandoned buildings on walks. Um, mm. I like to do that quite a lot. Like, I found this abandoned house on the other side of the mall from here. Um, and uh, that, that was... I mean, that inspired a story for my latest book. Um, it looked like someone had left it in a rush. There was a lot of... A lot of clothing still around. There was half a bottle of rum, um, and it was just. But but the walls had come down, and it was really properly in the middle of nowhere. One of those spots where it's just like not a commercial path. It, the footpath went past it, but it does. It didn't really go to anywhere. So obviously, not a lot of people were walking past it. Um, and then that's um, that's now become a whole section of, of my latest book which is set which in book 1968 is that? well this is called villager oh, yes. which is my it's my first novel that i've been promising to myself that i'll write for 20 odd years <laughs> and i've finally done it um and it's uh, it's nearly 200 years in the life of a fictional dartmoor village but it's not the dartmoor that we're seeing around us it's 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 my fictional dartmoor that is in the same place Dartmoor is, but it has different legends and different people and different villages. 
but they have the same feel as as this place but i didn't want to make it kind of like a i, I made this decision like part way through writing it i just didn't want to make it kind of like a sort of guide to the, the real Dartmoor and I thought I just thought I could have more fun making up my own legends because I sort of feel like a lot of the legends here um, they're now very very well told a little bit over told so they've changed over the years like Chinese whispers presumably oh yeah that happens with all folklore mm. um, and I think because I've written um, three or four non-fiction books now which mention Dartmoor quite a bit I sort of felt a bit like, well, I've done that. So this place is going gonna, gonna to have all the characteristics of Dartmoor, the same um, microclimate, um, the same kind of terrain, but I'm making up my own folklore for it, my own stories and my own geography. But it's all very, very much inspired by my walking up here, my talking to people who live up here. Um, and it's all it kind of revolves around one folk legend that I've made up and also um, a record, an album that was recorded on the edge of this fictional Dartmoor in um, 1968, which um, became a kind of lost masterpiece. Um, and it's, so it's all, that's always in the background of all the stories and they all kind of interlink. And because you've got such a strong music background and, well, you are... You're a, yeah, do you still write any music journalism? No, I mean, I gave up journalism six and a bit years ago. Okay. I banned myself six and a bit years ago. I banned myself from ever writing for a national newspaper or a magazine again. Just went independent, did my own thing. Um, and I, I don't miss music journalism. I'm really glad that I did it. But my, my enjoyment of music got a lot... Um, it just became I, I started to enjoy music as much as I ever had in my life when I stopped writing about it <laughs> but at the same time it is a big part of my life and I wanted to write about it in a different way and I'd kind of been holding off doing that and this, this book's given me an opportunity to do that and I really enjoyed that actually because it almost feels a bit like in the last few books because music's such a big part of my life just, just the fact that um I, I really felt felt like I was holding off a bit and because I knew that I wanted to, to write about it in a certain way and those books weren't the place for it and this this one is. Um, and I just I just enjoyed making stuff up really, but drawing on a lot of you know, people have a real obsession with a lost album. An album that should have been huge, but for some reason wasn't. And then the person who made it had quite a tragic life and died penniless. And, and then it had really interesting psychedelic cover art, perhaps, as well. And if you're a record collector person or even just a big music head like I am, you, you go crazy for that stuff. And then you start to question it and say, well, how much is it to do with the actual art? And how much is it to do with the art, the fact the art's kind of been shoved away somewhere for a while and like <laughs> yeah, yeah. been lost in a loft and then you come back to it so I, i'm also fascinated with this idea that um the art can get better for that like it was maybe good when it was recorded but the years have made it better where it's been how it's been neglected because it was ahead of its time so a lot of this book is me combining that idea with this landscape that we're in now and how this landscape might have influenced 
um, the songwriting on a record like that. We've just got, come into a very, very different landscape from where we just were. We were on the heather moors, and now, well, OK, we've still got heather and gorse, but these are obviously plantations, right? Yeah, so this is more, more of a kind of managed landscape. It's, it's not wild. Um, Christmas trees. Yeah, Christmas trees everywhere, um, which, which you, you get quite a, a bit of up here, and, and I, th- I think that's fine. I think it's interesting too. It's not my favourite part of the moor, but, but I, I do like it, but it's perhaps not, um, not the best landscape for nature. No, and I don't think they're being sold as Christmas trees unless people live in very, 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 very tall houses. Exactly. Because they yeah. seem to have overgrown for that purpose. But we're, we're going to get through this quite quickly and then, then we'll get back to the wildness again. Did you, do, you, do you ever sleep on the moor? Do you go, do you go out with your sleeping bag? Um, this is something that I've been telling myself I do every year. And what I said, because I didn't live on the moor, I lived a few miles away from it but I was always up here and I kept saying I'd do it and um, I mean I've slept in my garden does that count I live on the moor but I haven't it's a bit lame I haven't actually done it and actually I'm not to say I'm like someone who's outdoors all the time and I walk so much and um, I'm always in in rivers in cold water and stuff I'm not a big camper I'm I feel like that's that's the part of me that's that's less outdoorsy. I was a massive camper as a kid, um, but festival camping put me off it. <laughs> and I really, really like nice beds. I've, I've got a very comfy bed, and I like it a lot. No, I think that's fair enough. And if you're in your garden, it's not bad. You're looking at the stars, aren't you? Yeah, I'm looking at stars. I mean, the stars, it's very clear. If the sky's clear here, you, you see the stars very clearly, much more so than when I lived in the east of the country it's the difference is enormous um and and i'm next to a river as well um which is uh, the river i'm next to has that has infiltrated um villager as well it's become a character in the book in its own right or a version of it perhaps a version of the river i'm next to and two or three other rivers that are on the moor but if you live next to a river on dartmoor it becomes part of your life because they have such a strong personality. Mm. And, um, and this one's a beast in winter. It's absolutely terrifying. <laughs> um, it's, you can hear it all through the house when there's been a lot of rainfall. It's got this incredible roar. Um, and uh, and, and I'm, I was writing the bulk of this book over the winter while this was happening. And how can that not end up in the book, really? Oh, that's brilliant. When's the book due to come out? Um, it's coming out in April next year. Um, yeah, I think end of April 2022. And it's um, it's a, a crowdfunded book, which is the same as the, oh, yeah. the four before it. So people can can kind of contribute to its um, to its funding still by pre-ordering a special edition. And if you want, you can have a little extra bit of art with it or something like that. It's, it's just a different way of doing things, but it allows me to, um, I suppose, to write something a bit weirder. So you're not entirely sure where we are? Not really, but, OK, no. but you've got the map, so we're OK. So here's the Warren House Inn, where we started, and we kind of hacked our way over here, and now we're in here, in Suissons Down. And I'm guessing Suissons comes from um, the fact that um, Dartmoor Prison 
um, was built um, for prisoners of the Napoleonic Wars. So there was a really big French population after that because a lot of them stayed on the moor. Oh my goodness. And um, started families with with Dartmoor ladies. What is that? What does it say above the there? What's that? Tumuli. Oh. Um, which I I guess we would have got was a little lump up oh, there okay. that we would have gone past. Okay. Um, I'm hoping we're about here and we can go to Swisson's farm and then through Shalakum Down, uh, which is remnants of a medieval village and mm. has some very friendly sheep there, if they're the same as they were the last time but one. They basically followed me for about half a mile down the road. <laughs> um, and then um, and then we can walk up this road here and try and see Grimm's Pound before we, we hook back to the inn over there. Okay, Does that lovely. Sound good? Yeah. And then we've got the... This is... I wanted to show you Hameldown, but it's a bit far as, to do that as well. But this is the ridge where I got pixelated, or uh, pixie-led, whatever yeah. they like to call it, um, where I, I just got spun round. And I, I was on this path and I turned left, and in the mist it took me there. So Dartmoor spun me round, and yeah. I still can't make head and a tail of that. So it's Hameldown Tor where you were? Just before, I was on Hameldown Ridge, and I just, just before Hameldown Tor. Oh, you turned left just before the Tor? Yeah. And I've I've been back since, and I still can't understand it. It really freaks me out. <laughs> but that's that's good. I was kind of waiting for it to happen to me. I don't think you're a proper normal person until you've been disorientated by pixies. Hmm. But this is actually the side of Dartmoor that I know less well. Because I'm on I'm on the south side. And we'll wait for villagers to come out in the spring. But you've also got one that you were saying is. Uh, that was published a while ago, which is more actually about Dartmoor? Well, my last few non-fiction books, they all have bits of Dartmoor in them. Um, but there's one in particular which is uh, came out in 2019, um, which is called Ring the Hill. And it's called Ring the Hill, and it's, um, it, it's lots of different... What does that mean, Ring the Hill? It's an ancient term for hair, as in the animal. OK. Um, from uh, a very, very old poem, which is um, called The Naming of the Hare. And it's just lots and lots of different old terms for hares. And Ring the Hill was one I liked. And I just... It's a collection of sort of essays that blend into one another that are about my time in very undulating landscapes. So it seemed like a nice title as well um, for the book. And hares kind of appear... We'll go down here. Hares um, appear here and there, almost like they're almost at the edge of the picture all the way through the book, because <laughs> I'm on the lookout for hares all the time. Anyway, one of the sections in the book is, is about Dartmoor, and it's all about my connection to Dartmoor, which I found out is more than just my connection as a walker and a lover of the landscape. Because when I first moved down here... Um, to Devon, that is, which was at the start of 2014. My dad spoke to his uncle Ken, um, who was the last member of his parents' generation in the family still alive, and um, Ken reminded him that my dad's grandma, my great-grandma, um, used to live on Dartmoor, even though they uh, all the family's been in Nottinghamshire for decades and decades and decades but 
she was um, a child on Dartmoor um, and her family um, were tenant farmers who provided food for Dartmoor Prison, which was quite an exciting thing to find out. And in my head, it kind of made me think, well, yeah, that's why I feel so connected to the place. It's part of my ancestry. It's, it's part of my blood. Um, I don't know if that's true, but it was, a, it was a nice thing to know. So this part of Ring the Hill is it's me talking about my walks up here, my experiences, um, little adventures I've had, and also Im- slightly imagining her life here in the early 1900s and what that might have been like, her as a child. Um, because I think she... So they, they moved away when she was about 13 to, to Nottingham. And her mum, my great-great-grandma, um, was... Uh, everyone talked about her in Stapleford in Nottingham because she was the only woman who went in the pub on her own. And that was apparently quite scandalous in Nottingham at that time. But in at Dartmoor, apparently it had been fine, Dartmoor pubs. So Dartmoor's kind of ahead of its time oh, in that way. Devon was ahead of itself. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Um, so um, I did ask you if you would mind bringing um, a book. Oh, oh, we don't know what this is. I can't test you on everything. We've got a... Of some fallen down It'll buildings. Be some, some remnant of mining industry on the moor, yeah. probably. Like um, a, it looks like a home, someone's we, home. It, what it means is we've got a little wall to sit. Oh, yeah, okay. So you're looking up a nice passage from Ring the Hill. Yeah. So this is me talking about when I first moved to Devon. I was living about 15 minutes from the moor, 15 minutes' drive, that is. And I'd. Fall in love with someone who lived in Devon. And um, so while she was at work, um, I'd come and walk on Dartmoor while I was waiting for her to finish her shifts. And I was already starting to think about moving down. And I'd, I'd properly fallen in love with it because I was walking in Norfolk. And I liked walking in Norfolk a lot. But then it's not proper walking. It's so flat. <laughs> um, you know, like five... Norfolk miles is kind of like three Devon miles, really. Um, So this is a little bit from that. While I waited for her to complete her shifts in a shop in Plymouth, I explored the moor. I followed a broken clay pipe along a ledge above the River Plym, where the devil once handed a farmer a sack containing the farmer's dead infant son. In rain that probably could not have been scientifically wetter, rain that I embraced more than I'd ever embraced rain before, I introduced myself to the rivers, the long, busy row of them running down from the moor to the torn edge of the country. I listened to their dramatic rush and it sounded like the new thrilling state of my insides. Each walk mussed me up a little more, pulled my stuffing out. Some neatened parts of me began a gradual, elated process of vanishing. Can you find one about your grandmother? Or is that quite complicated, a bit about Um, your grandmother? Yeah, there's a bit here, actually. Mm, Carry on, then. Um, So it's my great-grandma, who I knew until I was five. Um, With the help of a friend, I managed to to trace the family back um, to the 1700s. So they'd they'd been around. And and there is a suggestion that, through some of my friend's research, she does family trees, that... I think my great-grandma 
her dad might not have been her real dad. But I didn't cover that in here. Okay. That's another story That's another I'll probably, time. probably tell another time. Mm. A year later, just after I moved to within 15 minutes of the moor on the southeast side, my dad was talking to his uncle Ken, who reminded him that my, my dad's grandma, Ken's mum, had lived on Dartmoor until her early teens when her family relocated to Nottingham. To me, this was hugely exciting, unexpected news, which I was more than happy to allow to underpin the deep sense of belonging I felt when I was out on the moor. I strived to recall the face of my great-grandma when I'd last seen it in person at the age of five. I didn't get much further than a big grin and some glasses. A look through some photographs from the 1970s brought the grin and glasses into sharper focus. They remained the dominating features of the face. It was a wild face, not neat, not a face you could imagine ever rebuking you for living in your own free and particular way. Kathleen, that was her name, mother of Ted, my grandfather and the most renowned head bumper of all the m many head bumpers of the head bumping side of my family. <laughs> You see, I'm talking here, just to put this into context, I lived in a cabin on the edge of the moor in 2018 and um, I'd started to notice that I was inheriting a lot of my granddad's traits, like a little bit belatedly, um, mostly just being very, very dopey, and um, but bumping my head a lot, um, which he al always used to do because... He was, he was bald. He'd been bald since he was about 26, 27. And when I was a kid, he had this scar um, across his bald head. And I knew he'd been in the war, so I just thought he got it from fighting. Then when I was about maybe eight or nine, um, I asked my dad about it. And my dad said, no, he didn't get it from fighting. He used to rep repair planes. And he's so dopey that he stood under the propeller of one and it whacked him on the head. <laughs> and knocked him out so that's why he had this huge scar on his head so this was but this was typical behavior of, of my my granddad ted who also once put his lit pipe in a stranger's pocket by mistake on a bus <laughs> to mablethorpe and and had to kind of put this guy out after he caught fire um is uh, that true absolutely true there's several of these stories about him actually in in my books um, ring the hill and 21st century yokel um and uh, i suddenly realized i was becoming ted in various ways so around this time i'd moved to this cabin and i'd always had horseshoes um on my houses and i found two horseshoes um but because this house was made out of wood i didn't want to um be so forward as to kind of nail one into the wall but I saw this ridge above the front door and I thought oh they'll sit there really nicely not thinking about what would happen when I shut the front door so I walked out for my first big moorland walk shut the front door behind me then a moment later I was seeing stars and I was <laughs> flat on the floor in front of the door and I realized one of these horseshoes had whacked me on the head and I was walking up onto the moor and um, I noticed, I passed a couple of people. I was walking up this um, hill called Ugbra Beacon, which was near my house. And I passed a couple of people and um, they were giving me strange looks. And then I felt this liquid on my face and I realised like my head was just pouring with blood, pouring down my face. Um, so this is why I'm talking about, about head bumping and I'm wondering um, if Kathleen had also been a head bumper because she was my... Granddad's Those people mom. probably you became a, you probably became a Dartmoor legend. 
one of the legends that they talked about, the man with the bleeding they, head. They, they still talk about it, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a nice thought. Um, I couldn't help but fantasise about this new unsuspected strand of my lineage. All my ancestors before Kathleen, generations of Dartmoor people with unneat faces, going right back to prehistoric times and the time of my most unneat ancestors of all, who went around grinning and looking unkempt and bumping their heads on the low-hanging boughs of ancient oak trees and delighting in letting the rain wash over them and standing on enormous rocks and trying and not always succeeding in not banging their heads on the enormous rocks and ritualistically worshipping an old god with the face of a knowing sun and waving their sickles around. That's your family. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> they sound very interesting. That, that's where I'm from, I've decided. But yeah, I did kind of, initially, before I was told that they were tenant farmers who made food for the prison, um, I thought, great, I'm from a long line of druids who hung out up here. It might still be true, yeah. who knows. But I wondered if on your way you'd encountered the hairy hands. <laughs> I hadn't encountered the hairy hands. Do you hands. know about the hairy hands? No. Near Postbridge, where, which is probably two miles from where we are now, um, there was this spate of people, um, cars, motorbikes, horses, cyclists, being pulled off the road by giant hairy hands <laughs> that were disembodied. Um, I think it... Look at that dragonfly. Oh, yeah. Oh. And, it's uh, like an emerald, I think, isn't it? I think it is. It's yeah. huge. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, he's coming, coming back, he's coming back. And, yeah, the hairy hands, uh, they even killed a doctor from Princetown by pulling him off the road. And this went on for about... When was this? It was, it was mostly um, early 1900s, late 1800s, and eventually the Daily Mail came down to investigate, see if they could find the hands, <laughs> and they didn't. And... Uh, I think it was just decided that it was a unusual slope on the road that threw a lot of people off. But that's far less interesting <laughs> as an explanation. And, and even after that was decided, and apparently the hands then went into retirement and weren't around for ages, there was a woman who parked there in a camper van or a caravan and... Um, she saw the hands coming through the window to get her. <laughs> Once you start talking about those things and you start telling stories, everything seems like it's got some strange story. So now I'm looking at this bit of grass that's all been flattened. Ooh. It's like the Dartmoor beast has been there. Yeah, that would be one of the black dogs, one of the, the wish towns that you get around here. Um, that, uh, do you know about Dewar? Dewar is the, the Dartmoor version of the devil. No. Um, so, he, yeah, he hangs around um, Wisman's Wood, he likes, which is quite near where we are as well. That's become a bit of a kind of popular tourist spot now. And they've, they've actually closed it off because during the pandemic, too many people have been going there and there's been littering and people pulling, off, pulling moss off the trees because it's, um, it's got this incredible lichen there, um, which looks like... I always think it looks kind of like... Some equivalent of tinsel for people who like folk music. Um, and, but it's just got so popular they've had to block it off. Um, but that's um, legendarily, legendarily a haunt of, of Dewar, the Dartmoor devil, and he, he would ride out of there through the sky 
with his, his demon dogs. And what would he do to people? Um, just kind of scare them a bit, I think. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, um, there's a story about him in my next book, actually, a short story about, about his problems on, on the dating scene. Um, it's a lovely stone wall going up there. Oh, yeah. Stunning. There's all, yeah, there's also the Jewish stone. Um, so he, he does all that stuff. He also um, rode off through the sky on one of his demon horses with a gambler from Widdicombe who was... Um, he, was he, he sold his soul to Dewar and, um, and Dewar then waited for him in the pub. Um, and people knew that Dewar was a bit out of the ordinary because they could hear his throat sizzling as he drank his beer. Um, yeah, he, he grabbed him while this, this guy sold his soul to the devil um, while he was in the middle of playing cards. Um, this guy, I think he's called Jan. There's a lot of Jans on Dartmoor in the 1700s, 1800s. And, um, and he was still holding his cards and they flew up above Widdicombe Church and he dropped his cards. And now apparently the fields under there are in the exact shape of giant playing cards <laughs> and where he dropped them. When I was walking under the Jewish stone, um, I, I did get a bit scared because I'd read that story about him um, handing, uh, just a, a guy handing this farmer um, something in a sack which he thought was some food and turned out to be the farmer's dead son. And it's, it's like you say, you, you in this landscape, particularly not today because it's so bright and lovely, but on a, on on a, a misty murky day. winter's yeah. day, there's so much room to believe in this stuff. You know, it's so different, isn't it, to you, if you heard this story and you were in the centre of Southampton. <laughs> it's, it's like this, there is, look around us, there's so much room for stories, there's so much room to believe. And I, I was scared walking down there, like wondering if I'd get back to my car while it was um, still light, not quite knowing the way. And I have had li little moments of, um, of what... M.R. James, the ghost story writer, called um, uh, a pleasing terror, I suppose you'd call it. I, but I, I kind of, I like scaring myself on walks. I always have done. And, uh, but only a little bit, knowing that you're going to be home in your own bed that exactly, night. Exactly, yeah. It's just, just a little bit, not, not getting... But I don't know if, if that stuff really, really frightens me. I mean, I do a lot of stuff on walks, I suppose, that might frighten some people. Um... You know, I think, you know, being late with my tax or just feeling like I've, I've maybe said something tactless to someone at a party, they're, they're the things that really frighten me. I'm not frightened about, like, going in an abandoned building at midnight on some moorland. Not, not in the same way. It doesn't bother me too much. Oh, OK. But I have lived in a very frightening place and written a bunch of ghost stories in it, which was also next to some moorland, but in the Peak District, and that was during the Beast from the East, the worst winter in recent memory. And I think that's the nearest I've been to being, like, properly terrified. Completely cut off. Yeah. I was snowed in for weeks okay. down a track at the top of what is almost a mountain. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. You, I mean, you're right about the weather. It's hard to imagine Dartmoor and all its stories when it's really sunny and there isn't a cloud in the sky. Yeah. And... 
It's really bright. It's really bright, bright, bright sunshine. Do you know which tour that is? I would actually have to look up. Do you mind if we have another look? No, I think it's quite nice to know so the names of them. of them. But would you... Yeah, how do I, you... I mean, how... I wonder how long you'd have to live at this place before you knew every, every bit. Like, there's always more to know. Well, that's great. That's why you love living here, presumably. Yeah, there's always more stories to tell. And Do you know much about the um, geology of tours? Um, uh, you know, because they are very unique to Dartmoor, aren't they? They are. I mean... Are they on Exmoor as well? No, not in the same way. They are, they're very much unique to Dartmoor. And you get the clitter at the bottom, um, like in the rivers and stuff, which is, which is stones that's gradually come, come down from the top of the, the tour. And they, oh. they gather in the ri- river and they're, they're called clitter, whereas in Cornwall you get them on Bodmin and stuff and they call them clatter in <laughs> Cornwall. Um, um, a lot of the... I like how you get this... This thing in winter where you're kind of like, is this a stream or is it a footpath? It's kind of both at the same mm. time, a lot of the t- time. I mean, it's just, it's so wet in winter up here. But I, I love that and I kind of feel like it's good for you. Like I really, a lot of the time when it's really chucking it down here, um, I'll really embrace it. I'll just go out into it and just decide to just get really, really wet. Like not wear my hood on my anorak, not wear a hat, just let it... Let it let the rain just attack me, and and what I always feel is like when you're in the house and you see a day like that where it's really oppressive rain, and it looks quite frightening, and you think, oh, I want to hide from that. It's scarier when you're in the house looking at it <laughs> than when you're actually out in it, just committing to it. I always remember about um, a few about a week or two before my 40th birthday, I was having a big big party for my 40th birthday, and. Um, I had an enormous spot on my nose, almost like a boil, like a really red, like like too much of a spot. Like just thinking, I just, yeah, I'm not too bothered about this, but I don't want it when I'm having a party with like 40 or 50 people coming for my 40th. I, so I, I tried to get rid of it with, I don't know, tea tree oil or whatever you, you put on it, like scrubbing your face thoroughly, eating a load of oranges. And, and then, and it hadn't gone. Um, and then... I came up to Dartmoor in this unseasonable um, hailstorm in early May, um, and which, which turned into seven other different types of weather. And I came back, and it just vanished. The spot had completely gone. Basically, the, the moor had exfoliated me. <laughs> and I just think, yeah, that's the magic of it. Don't right tell there. anyone. They'll start bottling it and selling it for loads no, of money. No, but it won't be the same. It'll, it'll be like where they sell that sea spray hair stuff, which <laughs> it can never be like what the sea's actually like. Do you, do you don't know what these flowers are, do you? No. no it's like moss. It's sort of moss, white moss. Yeah, it's probably a kind oh. of Oh, there. That water is... Go on, have a drink from yeah. it. I dare you. I want to. You never know, they might, there might be a dead sheep just upstream. It was a bit late for that. <laughs> that was delicious. <laughs> where, are, where are we, Tom? What's, we what's it called here? We are at the Golden Dagger Tin Mine, which is um, just up from Shalicombe, not that far from our route back to the Warren House Inn. Um, so we've got remnants of tin mines down here. And, and this uh, is... Housing, presumably, do you think? I mean, it looks quite... It's quite a big area of ruins. Yeah, there might have been a little village next to it. Aren't you going to drink from the stream? What sort of... 
we, we walked away very quickly. So you said I, drink. I can and then we go and drink if you want, if you're daring me. I'll <laughs> go and do you. that. All right. It's really, really worth it as if well I've on a hot day. Bowel's disease, then I'll blame you. No, it's, I'm constantly probably drinking some of it by accident because I'm always underwater in the river at the moment, swimming. Good. Oh, yeah. it's so delicious, isn't it? Yeah, better than what comes out my tap, actually. I'm trying to work out if we want to go left up here or um, a bit further on and then across. I think a bit further on and then across. We're on our way home now, aren't we? I think we are, roughly. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So that was our own lovely Annabelle Ross with writer Tom Cox on the rather sunny moors of Dartmoor, not the misty moors that we're so familiar with and that a lot of his stories sort of engendered that atmosphere. So I really enjoyed listening to Tom's stories there. He seemed to go from one to another to another to another, but just they were so engaging from, oh, you know, tragic, comedic, curious and just, downright weird and I loved his personal take on that as well so um, you can read more of Tom Cox's brilliant sort of evocations of Dartmoor in a couple of his recent books which I mentioned in the in the opening but I'll repeat them again here Ring the Hill which is the the non-fiction work it looks at sort of the magic and power of hills but it's a bit more than that I think um, and then his latest novel, which is out in 2022, Villager, which is a sort of imagining, a fantasy, not a fantasy, but a sort of, it's a world based on Dartmoor, but not the real Dartmoor. So it's sort of infused with all that energy and, uh, and spirit. But yes, yeah, sort of a land of myths and legends. Talking of myths and legends. I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, joined, we're, we're back in the virtual studio um, with Jack Bateman and Hannah Tribe, who help put this podcast together. And um, lovely to see you both. Hello. Hello. Have you been into any mysterious landscapes like Dartmoor that you can you can think of? That yeah, I mean, I've been to Dartmoor a couple of times, and I can every single time it, I've been there, it's been that spooky, mysterious, damp, misty, spooky place that 
I feel that these stories really emphasise. And it's very weird because I think sometimes when you hear people talk about places like that and really get it was foggy, damp, and everyone's like, okay, it's just the typical sort of way of making somewhere sound a bit spooky. But when you're there, it is... There's, it's not under it's not over egging it. It is really when it does mist up there and it is wet and cold, it is quite a spooky, sparse place that is you can definitely see where all this inspiration comes from. Just thinking of one of my favorite books of all time is The Hound of the Baskervilles, Conan Doyle, the Sherlock Holmes story, um, which entirely picks up all I mean, it is one of the great mystery tales. I don't think it, I think it tails off a bit personally, but I think that beginning part of it, I mean, <laughs> I dare criticise such a great writer, but um, it's a really fantastic tale of the Hartmore and those horrible bogs that swallow, you know, carriages and horses and, and from which tales come forevermore. But yes, I've been to Dartmoor. I remember walking along a little Dartmoor Valley in the fog and there was a river beside me and just this, so creepily, a dead fox floated down the river past me, sort of grinning, is it sort of rictus grin? It was horrible, sort of, what sort of weirdness is going on here? And then you get those, what Tom and Annabelle were pointing out, quite a lot of those rocky tours, which I think they, they, they sort of said they're pretty unique to Dartmoor, sort of these rocky, I don't know whether they're the, the, the remnants of eroded hills and they just leave these rocky cores, but they're so weird. And they all have these strange shapes. So yeah, that's that's absolutely the fundamental part of our histories and mysteries is those sort of evocative landscapes that naturally seem to throw up really cool stories. Talk about it. Oh, well, of our histories and mysteries season is well, this is episode fourteen. We normally just do twelve. Spooky. Keeping going. I know something <laughs> something weird's going. Should have finished on thirteen. Uh, I know, and we still haven't done our our walk, uh, Hannah looking at the Welsh language. We haven't, but we've got a plan for that, don't we? Yes, we do have a plan. Um, a very cunning plan where we'll be going to... Um, well, we, get, we it's going to go into our next series. It's not because we're lazy, just we've had so many brilliant episodes. Then our next series, which will begin in 2022, is going to be Voices of the Countryside. So it seems really logical if we're talking about the Welsh language and how it conjures magic from the landscape, or maybe the lang- landscape conjures magic from the Welsh language. Um it sounds. It seems much more sense to do it then, and uh, we'll find a nice bright day. So, but voices of the countryside will be. It's quite a broad thing, but we'll be talking to people very connected to landscapes. We'll be talking. We'll be. We'll be listening to the wildlife, the birds as they come back from their winter. Well, we'll be talking to winter birds on the wild marshes, and we'll be listening out for the migrants coming back in March onwards, and we'll just be kind of getting some of those regional stories and other connections to the countryside we've enjoyed exploring this year. And we'd like this series to be an opportunity for us to share some of your stories. We'd love to hear from you if there's anything you want us to investigate, to talk about, or if you have a lovely voice that you'd like to share with everyone else. Oh yeah, that's that's a good point that we could have. Or you could just simply send us a little snippet maybe a description, maybe just a recording of something. We call them our sounds of the week. And they're always really lovely to share and kind of just get a little taste of the landscape where you are. So please do send any thoughts to me. I'm 
Fergus Collins. My email address is editor at countryfile.com. So nice and simple. But we've not finished with the Histories and Mysteries season. In fact, we're going to divert a little bit away from pure Histories and Mysteries because we've got a very special pair of episodes, which are an exclusive interview with the chair of Natural England, Tony Juniper. And it's a pretty good time to be talking to Tony because he, you know, we've just, we're in the middle of recording this in the middle of COP26. And Tony is a authority on all sorts of environmental issues. It'd be really interesting to hear how he's gone from campaigning and being on the outside to now being part of the sort of establishment and, and heading up a big government body such as Natural England. And he's got tremendous things to say. So we're going to do that over the next two episodes. And after that, we'll have a couple more histories and mysteries and then our Christmas special. Christmas! So, so loads more to look forward to. And just before we go, I'd like to say another big thank you to Tom Cox and Annabelle Ross for that lovely interview. Just so, so full of great stories. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. But for now, it's goodbye from me and the team.